all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason, you. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Welcome back to Southern Remedy. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, professor of pediatrics and internal medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Today's show is not live this morning, so we are not taking phone calls, but we do have some very useful medical information to share this morning. So tune in and uh, sit back, and uh, don't forget you can always send us an email if you're uh, listening or afterwards if uh, something pops into your mind. I know that's how my brain works. You can always reach us at remedy at mpbonline.org. Good morning, Kevin. Good morning, Dr. Jimmy. Thanks, as always, for coming in here to uh, do these sort of -of out-of-studio shows, as we call them. Uh, And we've got a bunch of uh, topics here, some of the stuff that I think you've taken from concerns that patients you've seen have had, and maybe some stuff that we've also heard about uh, kind of on a regular basis when people call in. So uh, let's dig right into things. The first one uh, deals with hypertension, and the question is, why do I have to take more than one blood pressure medication? I'm lucky that I only have to take one, but I know some people have to take more than one. How come sometimes one just doesn't work? Yeah, Kevin, you're, you are in the minority, and that's one of the misconceptions about hypertension that is a common question with somebody who's newly diagnosed, or maybe it's somebody like yourself who's been controlled on one medication for a number of years, and for whatever reason, they need to have another medication to control it. So we have a lot of different medications to control high blood pressure we have things that control the angiotensin uh, 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 system. There's all kinds of different systems of regulation. Some of them have to do with the kidney. Some of them have to do with the sympathetic nervous system. But all of these different classes of medications act in one particular way to lower blood pressure. And there was a study back way back in the mid-'90s called All Hat. All Hats. All these studies have funny names. I think there's somebody in a closet somewhere um, making up all these names. Um, but All Hat wanted to see which medications in particular were good to start as the first medication. Uh, and it looked at several different classes of medications. Uh, but one of the things that came out of All Hat, in addition to that, was the number, the average number of medications to control blood pressure. And we're talking like tens of thousands of people, so 33,000 people in this study, that most everybody, to get to their goal blood pressure, which for most people is at least less than 140 over 90, now we know that you know getting it down, if there's no contraindications uh, and talking with your physician about that, if you can get it down below 130 over 80, that's even better. Uh, 2.4 medications to get it less than 140 over 90. So the average number is somewhere between 2 and 3. And the reason is because of the way they work. So an ACE inhibitor, for instance, or an angiotensin receptor blocker, they act on one system. A diuretic, whether that's a thiazide or a loop or a potassium-sparing diuretic, those all are going to act on a different system. A beta blocker is going to act on the sympathetic nervous system. And sometimes when you block that one system, the body sort of works its way around that and blood pressure sort of inches back up. Um, Of course, all of this is predicated on sort of a base. You can sort of think of this as sort of the pyramid or the base of the pyramid that we recommend for everybody who has high blood pressure is changing anything in your lifestyle that might be raising it, like excess salt intake or lack of physical activity or maybe losing some weight. Uh, Eating a healthy diet, one of the most powerful things is eating a Mediterranean diet like the DASH diet. So that's the reasons why. And if you talk to most people, they'll tell you, oh, yeah, I guess I am on two, maybe three medications to control my blood pressure. Uh, But I want to kind of reinforce what you just said there at the very end. If someone is on several and would like to not be on several but be on less, if they modify their lifestyle to help their blood pressure, that possibility could be where, hey, we don't have to give you this particular medicine anymore. Oh, yeah. I've seen that in a lot of my patients. It's certainly an achievable goal for most people. Now, if you have a patient and they're on two medications, uh, their blood pressure is controlled, and they're doing everything right, it's less likely that they can come off of those two. But 
if it's somebody who does have a high salt uh, you know, intake, if they aren't really eating a lot of fruits and vegetables, there's a really good chance that changing some of those modifiable risk factors might do that. Smoking is a good example. If you quit smoking, you really can make a big impact on your blood pressure. And then finally, these medications are, are fairly – I mean, once they figure out the right combination, these medications do seem to do well at controlling blood pressure. Yeah, for the majority of, of most people, once you find which ones – and there's no test that you can necessarily uh, – with a few exceptions of some secondary causes of high blood pressure, there's not really any test to say these particular – medications would be best in Kevin, or these would be, you know, these are the the, the uh, classes of medications. You can make some guesses, and sometimes there's some, um, there's some generic uh, overarching themes that we use to sort of guide us. Uh, and, of course, we try to match side effect profiles and those kinds of things. But really, when it comes down to it, a lot of times it's just putting the patient on the medication and seeing if they're going to react favorably to it. This is Southern Remedy. We are not taking phone calls today, but Dr. Jimmy and I are sharing some uh, information that hopefully will be useful to those of you who are listening. Uh, you can always send an email if you do have a question. Send it to remedy at mpbonline.org. Our next question deals with uh, treatment of diabetes, and it's interesting because I was looking at this question, and I think I can pronounce two of the names of these drugs correctly <laughs> because I um, have seen the ads on television, right? right. which yeah. is another conversation we might get have at a later date. <laughs> <laughs> of why that's so familiar, but uh, so we're talk. Let's talk about uh, what is it? Jardians. Jardians. Yeah. Invocana and Farsiga. And Farsiga. Farsiga. That's F A R X I G A. So these are some of the new, uh, one of the new classes of diabetic medications, and all three of these are in the same class. So this was a question that I got uh, from somebody. Uh, who came to see me and said, hey, I saw my endocrinologist, and they recently suggested, I've been a diabetic for a long time, but they suggested I add uh, Jardiance to my treatment. They also had heart disease and heart failure, which was controlled. And they wanted to ask me, you know, they didn't really have a chance. As, you know, that's one of the things about being a primary care guy. Uh, it's It's nice to be able to give these explanations to patients. Sometimes... In some clinics, there's such a high volume, and you may be sort of overloaded as a you know as a patient. You don't really have a chance to uh, ask those questions that you need. And, and for this particular patient, they didn't really have a chance to ask, "Hey, why do you think I need to be on uh, Jardiance?" So this class of medications are unique in the treatment of diabetes. Uh, they were developed basically how they work is in the kidney. So the kidney normally filters out glucose or blood sugar. That's the way your body gets rid of it. And it filters it <coughs> excuse me, out of the bloodstream, and then it goes into the urine, and then it's re some of it is reabsorbed back into the bloodstream by the kidney. That's to help to conserve that energy and not lose all of that. So what this drug does is it, it blocks that process so that you basically lose blood sugar in your urine. That's how you lower the blood sugar. It doesn't really have, uh, it doesn't really interact with how much insulin you have on board, whether that's your own insulin. Insulin is that hormone that helps to control blood sugar. The more, ins uh, the higher your blood sugar, the higher your insulin should go, which means that it doesn't lower your blood sugar too much. You know, a lot of diabetic medications, if you take them, it'll make your blood sugar get too low, particularly if you're not eating. Uh, but what they found about this class of medications, particularly uh, particularly Jardiance and Imbicana, but also Forsiga, is that they have other beneficial effects, particularly around cardiovascular disease. So in a patient who has heart failure, they're going to do better if they have diabetes that's being treated with this medication. Their heart failure is going to be better. In fact, we have, uh, you know, the latest data suggests even that even if you don't have diabetes, that that might be something to add to your heart failure regimen. Same thing if you have nephropathy, which just means you have kidney damage with diabetes. That's a common uh, down-the-road side effect, bad side effect. We call it a morbidity of having type 2 diabetes. Uh, that's another indication for being on one of these medications, and it can significantly decrease your risk of having a heart attack or progressing toward dialysis. So that's why they're adding that. Generally speaking, if your diabetes is controlled, you're probably on something like metformin, maybe another medication or two. 
uh, for the run-of-the-mill patient who doesn't have these other conditions or is not at risk for developing those, uh, heart disease or uh, um, don't have kidney disease, nephropathy, it's not recommended right now that you use this as a first-line agent. Uh, but as a second-line agent, and you, particularly if you have these other things, that's probably the reason why they won't add that. All right. So let's. Uh, we got a couple of minutes before there, our first break, and I would kind of like to follow up on that. As I said, to me, it was funny because I read the question and they're like, "Okay, yeah, I recognize those names." I I don't think I've I've actively watched the commercials, if you know what I mean. And they're on, but and and I think it must speak to the volume of how frequently these are on that I recognize them. But I didn't. Re- I don't. I didn't associate. You know what they do. I just knew the name. Right. As a physician. Is it a two-edged sword that there's more advertisements on TV about potential medications people might take? Yeah, it is. And, you know, that's called direct-to-consumer advertising. So it used to be that drug reps and drug companies would sort of target physicians as the only, you know, source of saying, hey, we've got this new medication. Here's some of the uh, some of the evidence and some of the studies have been done. And that's the way that they would market that. Uh, Back in 1997, there was uh, some uh, guidelines that came out by the federal government called the Pharma Guidelines that sort of constricted that. We needed some checks and balances about that because there was a lot of influence of the pharmaceutical industry at that time with physicians. Uh, and But after that, particularly in the last 10, 15 years, there is a ton of direct-to-consumer advertising. In other words, you see those commercials out there. They're saying, hey, if you have these symptoms, ask your doctor about this drug, if it would be good for you. So it is good, I think, more engagement of patients in general with their physicians or their primary care provider is, is important. Uh, but it does, you know, they're advertisements. That's what their primary goal is. And, you know, having conversations with people, the same thing could be said if, you know, we have our our legal friends, sometimes we'll uh, do some direct-to-consumer advertising too, saying if you've ever been on this drug, you probably have some damage done to you. And that's not always the case. So uh, you have to be careful with it. But uh, sometimes patients will come in and say, I saw that. Is this for me? I always like those conversations, you know, just because it that's that's what you need between your patient and yourself is that healthy conversation about what would be good for them. My favorite part is they say, don't take this drug if you're allergic to, and the first thing they say is the name of the drug. Right. It's kind of like, yeah. first of all, how do I know that? And B, I think if that's, that was the case, F- I would definitely not FDA be FDA legalities, they have to say that. They usually say it really fast like a car dealership commercial to you. All right, let's take our first break of the hour. You're listening to Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. Producer Kevin Farrell in studio with Dr. Jimmy. We're not taking phone calls. We're not live in the studio today, but we are giving you some useful medical information, some of the things that uh, Dr. Jimmy's patients have been concerned about recently. We'll be back with more after this break. MPB Think Radio podcast. Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app. Welcome back to Southern Remedy. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Pediatrics and Internal Medicine at University of Mississippi Medical Center. We are not live on the air this morning, but we are taking, uh, we are not taking phone calls, sorry. Uh, but we do have some useful information to share from you this morning based on a couple of interactions that I've had with patients recently and uh, a couple of issues that are in the news. And uh, happy to be in the studio this morning recording this with Kevin Farrell, our producer. All right. Uh, good to see you, Dr. Jimmy. Let's uh, press press on. I've got a lot of good stuff to get to this hour. Uh, the next one says, I've had sinus congestion and cough for about five days, recently saw my doctor. After examining me, she prescribed a decongestant and suggested a nasal wash. 
but did not prescribe an antibiotic. Although I did not ask at the time, I'm wondering why she did not start uh, an antibiotic for the infection. Sinus congestion, particularly in the South, is one of the banes of our existence, right? So there are plenty of things in the South that are nice, like... uh, uh, in the wintertime, we have mild weather, uh, but that also has a lot of uh, you know, pollens that are in the air at different times of the year, mosquitoes in January and December, uh, all kinds of crazy stuff. Sinus infections are difficult to diagnose and treat, um, and we've realized that more and more over the years. And really the way I explain this to patients is it's a plumbing problem. So our skulls have sinuses, which are basically air-filled cavities in them. And we don't really know all the reasons why they're there, but uh, they have mucus that covers the walls of those to keep them uh, nice and moist, the tissue moist. And then all of that drains out normally into the nasal passages and in the back of the throat. So all those sinuses, there's, there's different ones in our, in our head. There's the frontal sinuses, maxillary, ethmoids, sphenoids. Uh, but all that uh, drains down normally. So what usually happens is for whatever reason, whether that's an allergic region, reason where you get sort of a stuffy nose and a lot of increased mucus, thick mucus production, or if it's a viral reason, if you contract a virus, a rhinovirus, coronavirus, uh, enterovirus, all kinds of different viruses that can do that in the upper respiratory passages, you stop the plumbing up. You stop up those uh, those openings, we call them meatus, uh, those, those openings between the sinuses and the nasal cavity. And when you do that, those normal bacteria that we have all in our, in our nares and our nose and in the sinuses, they normally get washed out on a daily basis continually. Uh, they get stopped up and you get bacterial overgrowth. Now, if you can, sometimes you can deal with that by washing away the blockage with a nasal wash or a decongestant medication that you take. Uh, that's why the physician in this case did this, was to try to open that back up. And you can get rid of all this with the body's natural process of just washing it out itself. Um, we tend to avoid antibiotics these days compared to, say, 40, 50 years ago because of uh, concerns over antibiotic resistance. And we try to be very careful about doling out antibiotics just because the more we do that, the less antibiotics we're going to have in the future. We already have way too much resistance uh, of a lot of bacteria. Generally speaking, it's about two weeks, one to two weeks. If you've had symptoms for one to two weeks, of, uh, you know, stuffy uh, head. There's lots of different things that we can do on exam to try to uh, see what's going on both directly and indirectly in those sinuses. Um, That's the point where we might do an antibiotic course. And we don't have to get fancy. You know, this has been tested time and time again. Uh, uh, Amoxicillin or augment are good first-line choices for that. You don't have to do other antibiotics. Now, a lot of people say, hey, I need my Z-Pack because I get, you know, my patients call in. I'm having a stuffy nose, and usually we'll ask, how long have you had it? Three days? Eh, we need me to do some other things. And uh, But that's that's it. It's mainly a plumbing problem. It, interestingly enough, it has a lot of similarities to ear infections in younger children, which uh, sometimes they can get better if they get over that little viral episode first. So just listening to your answer, it would seem to me that sort of the washing out procedure that tribe would be first because to clear up the infection, you need to have it cleared out and you don't want it all backed up where that bacteria was building up in the first right. place, I guess. Yeah, even if you prescribe antibiotics, you know, antibiotics are delivered through the drug, through, through the bloodstream to those areas. And when you have increased pressure in the sinuses because they can't drain, you impede blood flow to those tissues where you want the infection to be treated. So you're not going to get the antibiotic into that space very effectively uh, unless you wash things out. So washing out that that thick mucus plug from those uh, drainage holes, those meatus, uh, from, the, uh, from the sinus cavities to the nose, you have to do that really uh, to effectively treat it whether or not you're going to do antibiotics or not. Now, I'm not sure that exactly what you're talking about, but it's the the one thing that I'm always afraid of and I've never done is the whole nasal lavage where because I'm always afraid I'm going to somehow 
your brain's going to come out. Well, no. <laughs> and I'm going to suck in the water or choke on it or something. So. I, yeah, and I've ex- I've done this myself uh, over the last few years, and it works well for me. Um, it, it takes a bit of getting used to. Uh, so it's not just a, a nasal spray like you would just spray a couple of sprays in your nose. It's a wash is what we're talking about. So there are different ways to do that with a neti pot or with an applicator bottle. Uh, you do need to use, you know, pay attention to the directions and use water that's either been sterilized or boiled or <clears throat> distilled. Um, there, usually there's some some uh, uh, salt solution that comes with a lot of these, or you can there's some ing- uh, different uh, recipes to make your own. Um, but, it, again, it just washes things out. But you're right. It's like it's <laughs> – I don't mean to lessen this in any way, but it's a bit – you know, some people have said that feels like waterboarding to me. <laughs> um, but it's certainly not to that extreme. But it is a different sensation, and sometimes the water goes, you know, down your throat. Once you get used to it, though, most people do okay, and it it really helps. And what, And even if you're prone to this and you know you're prone to it in different times of the year, whether that's spring or fall or whenever – uh, you can do that daily and avoid all medications in some instances, including antihistamines. All right, next up, uh, you know, I think you've mentioned a couple of times you have a couple of sons that have uh, participated in youth sports, and I guess like every parent, you're concerned about uh, the health of your children when they participate in, in youth sports. Yeah, absolutely. So I have two very active uh, boys, uh, one who uh, currently is a uh, in college and he's playing collegiate sports, um, and uh, and I have my younger son is involved in different sports. Now, growing up, we were in a small school system, so we were able to do that to different sports, and they had interest in a lot of different things, football, baseball, um, soccer, uh, track and field, uh, a lot of different things. So uh, it's certainly something that we want to encourage. You know, all kids, uh, we do have a decrease in physical activity with our children, with our youth, uh, particularly if you look at adolescent females, they really drop off unless they're involved in the sport. Uh, it doesn't have to be organized from a health standpoint, though. I, w- I you know, want to emphasize that. You don't, you know, a lot of families are like, well, I, I guess I just needed them to join and do a sport. That may be the case uh, if if your doctor has said they need to get more physical activity, but it can be something very simple. The, the fact of the matter is we spend way too much time indoors and less time outdoors than we ever have. Um, so, uh, but the concern is if, uh, particularly athletes who are involved in one sport, what does that do over the long period of time, particularly these athletes that already by the time they finish high school, they've had 10 years in a single sport. And we know that repetitive sports that have very technical, very repetitive motions can cause damage over the long term, whether that's football, whether that's uh, soccer. You know, if you think about lower extremity injuries, football is usually traumatic injuries. Um, baseball with repetitive motions. So uh, we're starting to look at that and what is the healthiest thing for youth, particularly if they're going to continue doing that, say, in college or even beyond. So a couple of recent studies, uh, one of them was looking at 240 players ages 9 to 11 years of age uh, playing baseball as a single sport. So they weren't involved in any other sport. And they looked at uh, warm-up exercises. So the thing that we've gotten much better in, if you're going to do a single sport, there are certain things that you can do properly. You couldn't, you shouldn't just get out there and start throwing. Uh, and by warm-up, we don't mean just throwing. There are specific warm-up exercises that have been shown to reduce injury. So they randomized these baseball players. Half of them did these, and half of them just did whatever the normal warm-up was. And uh, they actually had... Uh, you know, a lot of decreased injuries uh, from doing those warm-up exercises. And the same thing can be said about just one sport participation. If you look at those athletes that did just one sport and then follow them forward, the ones that do continue, uh, if they're only involved in one sport in high school, they usually have much more injuries play less time in that sport, and there's been a lot of good data out of baseball and basketball in particular, uh, compared with those athletes that, say, played three or four sports. So diversification is good. Uh, If you're going to just play one sport, make sure you're doing it the right way. I advocate that all schools should have a a trainer, and that's not just somebody who has that name behind that, somebody who actually has the medical background and training and degree to do that, uh, that can be Uh, on site at the school for any injuries, but more importantly than that, injury prevention by doing things the right way. 
Uh, so if, if for like little leagues and things like that, if parents are concerned about it, or are, are, do you think at this point are there maybe some places to go online that would suggest proper warm-up exercises, maybe like we were talking about for baseball? Yeah, there's there's a lot of more information out there about that. And uh, you have to be careful. Uh, you know, make sure it's somebody who does have that designation as a certified uh, trainer. Uh, certainly large universities and sports medicine programs uh, are really good resources for that. Uh, if you're looking for, you know, sports medicine per, uh, in particular, if you look at their national website, and it's, I'm blanking on what the actual website name for that is, but if you just type in, you know, sports medicine uh, national society, you can find that kind of information. Those are the authorities on what can work. And what they're doing is they're, they know the anatomy, they know the physiology, and they know how to stabilize joints through motions repetitively uh, and do that in a way that's going to build up those tissues that help stabilize that joint and reduce injury and what to look for if you do start to see some breakdown. You know, and also I think, and I believe this really is catching on, especially in youth sports, and you talked about it, the idea of diversification, not necessarily your child playing baseball and just baseball or whatever, but playing a number of different sports. I think that that would be good from their just overall development as an athlete uh, and also, as you said, uh, not worried about uh, – the one that comes to mind to me is baseball pitchers, as we talked about that mm-hmm. repetitive motion or whatever. And so I think maybe from a coaching standpoint and from a parent standpoint, sort of encouraging our young kids to be involved in a number of different sports is, is a good idea. Oh, sure. Absolutely. All right. Time for another break. When we get back, we'll continue sharing some medical information. We've got some things that Dr. Jimmy looked up and also some maybe of the concerns of some of the patients that he sees on a regular basis. Not taking live phone calls today, but you can always email a question if you have one. Send it to remedy at mpbonline.org. This is Southern Remedy, and we'll be back with more after this. an MPB Think Radio podcast. A contractor ever tell you of the price of something and it sounds so high you think, eh, maybe I'll try it myself. Some jobs just aren't that difficult, and yes, you can do it. If you want to find out how to do those things, listen to Fix It 101, podcast everywhere. Welcome back to Southern Remedy. I'm Dr. Jimmy here with you with uh, also with Kevin Farrell. And today's show is not live. We are not taking any phone calls right now. But we do have some very good information for, that we would love to share with you this morning. Got a lot of good topics from across my patients and maybe a couple of other things that are in the news or from some recent uh, data that I've been uh, reading about. Do you want to thank Kevin for being here uh, with me this morning in the booth? And uh, we uh, would love for you to contact us, though, if you have a question. You don't have to wait to a live show. You can always email us, and we'll get to it directly, and then maybe share that with a larger audience. You can email us at remedy at mpbonline.org. All right. So, uh, Dr. Jimmy, in the last uh, part of the last segment, we were talking about uh, youth sports and the importance of having kids be active. I talked about diversity and that sort of thing. This is interesting because our next question says... My son seems to spend a lot of time on his phone or playing video games. How much is too much? Is he damaging his brain? Any advice on how to limit his screen time? Yeah, this is sort of at the other end of yeah. the spectrum, right? <laughs> um, so we have a lot of access. Uh, kids have a lot of access to things uh, that they did not uh, 30, 40 years ago. Video games were just coming out when I was growing up in the 70s, and uh, and you used to have to go places, right? You went to the arcade. <laughs> Nobody knows what that is anymore. Um, I had a guy that, was, that lived two doors down from us, and he ran an arcade, and he had – uh, some games in his garage that he let us play free, oh, wow. and uh, so Space Invaders and 
you know, Galaga and all those older games, Centipede. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, so what is too much nowadays since you can have it on your phone? And most kids, particularly once they get to the, their teens or earlier, they're going to already have a phone. They've got a PlayStation at home, Xbox, whatever, uh, you know, all kinds of different ways that we can do that. TV does count. So uh, this this person did use the, the correct terminology. So screen time is what we call it. So anything where you're just sitting there and you're watching something, even if you're participating in a video game, what does that do to your brain developmentally? How much is too much? This has been studied a lot, and there's a lot of good evidence that too much of this is damaging in a lot of different ways to youth and adults for that matter. Uh, disconnecting from it is sometimes hard. There are new designations for addiction that include uh, screen time type uh, uh, sessions. So uh, is it, you know, uh, back to the question, is it how much is too much? Usually uh, we advocate for less than two hours a day. And for a lot of kids, that's a lot of time. Thankfully, there's some tools that you can use now. Uh, you know, iPhone is a good example. I'm not an advocate just across the board for iPhones, but basically you can track that time. There's different uh, ways to do it inherently in the phone for your screen time, for yourself for that matter, too. It's very interesting. It'll give you, you can set it up and it'll give you little notifications about how much time you're using and the breakdown of what you're using on it. I would say that you need to be aware of how much time and what your child is viewing. A lot of it is not healthy for them. A lot of it is not age-specific for them. And then encouraging your child either directly, that may be some strong encouragement, or um, or maybe some gentle encouragement for them to interact with other people in ways and their peers in ways that are healthy. And that means being present with them without that phone in between. Because, you know, I've seen teenagers these days and they're like, hey, I want to go hang out. What they mean is they want to go hang out and they are all on their phones looking at their <laughs> phones just standing around. Um Long term, what does this mean for us? Well, we do know that it can decrease your ability to socialize, and the, it can certainly be associated with a lot of uh, negative psychological effects like depression, uh, anxiety, uh, social anxieties. Certainly all of these are exacerbated by uh, using the phone sort of as a surrogate for interacting with people. Um, so I would set some limits about that. The younger your child is, the easier that is. Uh, you know, a lot of families just say, hey, we're going to charge our phones in one common room. And, uh, you know, they take the lead on that, too. That's important to set some good examples. And then designing some time that are sort of phone-free areas or fasting from your phone. That's always a good thing. That's something that I've uh, developed over the last couple of years is I usually on the weekends take about an eight-hour fast from my phone. And uh, it goes somewhere, and I go in a different direction. Um, and it's uh, good for you. Um, the other thing is sleep is very important. Our kids don't get enough sleep, particularly in adolescence, so they're going to need anywhere from uh, 8 to 10 hours of sleep a night. Uh, most of them do not get that uh, amount of sleep, and uh, any kind of device can interfere with that. There's a lot of data that went back and forth. We sort of swung in different directions with the wavelength of light, like the blue light keeping you up more at night and uh, more of warm tones not being as detrimental. A little bit shaky on the evidence on that right now. Any light will stimulate the brain. That's the way your brain really regulates sleep and wake cycles is when it's dark, we tend to get sleepy. When it's light, we tend to wake up. So a lot of effects. Have some conversations with your child. Don't forget you're the parent, not the friend, even in adolescence. Uh, and sometimes we have to make those hard choices. And most of the time you can say, look, I know this is going to be unpopular. Maybe I have some problem on my phone as well. Hey, let's let's do the best thing. Let's do the better thing, which is interacting with one another and encouraging them to interact with their friends. Uh, and also I would say, too, parents need to keep in mind if you're thinking about screen time, that could possibly include computer time working on homework. Yeah, it can. Um, now, that's, you know, if you look at the recommendations uh, through AAP and other societies, it's that's been left out a little bit because there's such an integration of that into schools and they encourage them to do that. But I, I, I agree with you, Kevin. I, I think the, you, you have to look at that, too, because that includes some time that they're not interacting with others.
And also, you mentioned it, I think uh, parents can model behavior both in ways of maybe limiting their phone time uh, and family time, making sure that they're not pulling out their phone at the dinner table, but also, as you said, um, encouraging that one-to-one interaction because I'm, I'm not a parent, but I, I know some people who are. And I think that's one of the things is, you know, relating to teenagers. And so I think if you make an active effort at that and model behavior of I'm not using my phone a lot, I'm getting outside, getting exercise, I'm engaging with you, that sort of thing, that that's something that the, the teens can maybe track off of. Oh, yeah. That, those examples, I need to see that. They don't get enough of those examples. Um, you know, I was sitting here thinking about, too, of physicians. Like, there have been a couple of studies about physician well-being and doing some uh, some uh, testing of that with the electronic medical record because physicians now, we're spending a, more and more time on a computer than we ever have uh, because of the way that our, our health records are designed and our workflow for, uh, you know, day-to-day, you know, contacting patients. We have less time face-to-face. does a lot to you as a physician, too. You know, I, I have a lot of time communicating on my phone, and uh, you, you need some time where you can communicate with, for, with people, even introverts. They're st- we're still made to, uh, to interact with people. I'm an extrovert, but, I, you know, I have no problem <laughs> meeting strangers, talking to people. All right, the next one uh, talks about gout, and that's something that we've talked about on the air before. It says, my friend has gout and is asking about what foods are better to eat to prevent gout flares. What about fish? If you would give us a quick reminder of what gout is and then talk about uh, diet and gout. Sure. Uh, gout's a common disorder. It's been it's actually one of the oldest described medical conditions. So if you go back and look at ancient Greek texts, they'll talk about that. Sometimes you'll find it written in uh, prose, poetry. So gout is uh, is a condition where you get in your joints and other tissues a deposit of uric acid crystals. Uric acid is a breakdown product of our tissues that we normally get rid of uh, in our urine. And um, if you take in more purines, which is sort of the building blocks for, for different things, uh, it's a, an, an amino acid. Uh, if you take more in purine-type foods, which are usually red meats, you can have some fish do have purines in them. Uh, and if your body can't handle that amount of it, it gets deposited in your joints. And people will say, I've got gout in my toe, or I've got it in my elbow, or my, you know, my lower back, or my knee. Uh, and then if you look at that joint, if they have a gout attack, uh, that's because all those crystals are coming out of solution. And it's these little needle-like crystals. I was showing a friend of mine this the other day. And it's like, Habs, you know, th- this is what happened. It was happening in the joint space. Uh, and uh, once they get deposited in there, it becomes painful. It becomes inflamed. Uh, it can do a lot of damage over time, too, if you have enough of these flares. It can actually d- damage the synovial surface. That's the surface of the bone that rubs up against the other bone. Um so either you produce too much of it, and a lot of that can be diet-related. Almost everybody who has gout, they know. They know, hey, if I eat this pork chop tomorrow, I'm going to be, my toe's going to be killing me. Uh, or they're not getting rid of it. There are a couple of medications that we give. There, uh, you can give some anti-inflammatories that can help with the gout flares. But really taking something like allopurinol, Uh, which is a medication that's used to decrease gout production. There's a couple other things out there, too, that can help. But, again, diet is important. Now, a lot of people want to say, well, I want to eat something that's healthy. What about fish? And I've heard of um, fish that are high in omega-3 fatty acids. So these are mostly white cold water fishes like cod, salmon, those kinds of things. Uh, Interesting, a little bit of data that suggests that if you do that, if you eat uh, these omega-3 fatty acids have anti-inflammatory properties, so they'll decrease inflammation. Um, even if they have significant purine levels, they seem to have less gout attacks if you eat fish that are high in omega-3 fatty acids. Interestingly enough, a lot of people say, well, I don't want to eat the fish, but I'll take the, uh, you know, the omega-3 fatty acid supplements. That really hasn't borne out. Some, there's something about eating it in the food, so it doesn't really help if you do that. Uh, and it may have to do with different levels of omega-3 fatty acids that are in the fish. Uh, the way you describe gout made me think of um, kidney stones. Are they related at all? You can have uric acid stones, yeah. So the, that's not the most common cause of kidney stones, um, but it is a cause. So if you have gout, you can uh, develop kidney stones and 
any kind of kidney stone is is painful. It's uh, certainly uh, gout's one of those things that just particularly before we had medications, you had people that had uh, what we call tophi, which are uh, gout crystals that have been deposited underneath the skin, and those don't usually go away. So there's these hard, rock hard gout crystals that are underneath the skin. They could be on earlobes and all kinds of different places. And I think I remember you saying on, on the show once, it used to be known as a, a rich person's disease because yeah. of, of where yeah. the meat, the thing. Yeah, you don't find this in societies uh, or individuals that don't have a lot of red meat uh, just and, and are not awake. It's, it's associated with obesity and metabolic syndromes, too. All right, it is time for another break. You're listening to Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. Uh, we're not taking live phone calls today, but we are sharing useful medical information with you as we do uh, every week. You can always email the show if you do have a question for Dr. Jimmy. Send it to remedy at mpbonline.org. After this break, we'll be back to wrap up this program. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Hi, I'm Ryder Taff, Portfolio Manager at New Perspectives, a fee-only financial advisory and co-host of Money Talks. Each week, we take your personal finance questions and tell you about a money topic we hope you find helpful. Money Talks can be heard Tuesdays at 9 a.m. on MPB Think Radio. Podcasts can be found on our website, money.mpbonline.org, or on your smart devices podcasting platform. Welcome back to Southern Remedy. I'm Dr. Jimmy here with Kevin Farrell in the studio. We're not live this morning, so we're not taking any phone calls, but we do have some very useful information that we've been talking about, some patient encounters, what's new in the news, and got a couple more things we want to squeeze in for you before the close of the hour. That's right. And again, a reminder, you know, you can always send an email and Dr. Jimmy will respond to your email and we might share it on the air as well. But if you have a question, you can always send it to us, remedy at mpbonline.org. All right. Our next question has uh, deals with rheumatoid arthritis and it says I've been diagnosed with RA several years ago. They're in their mid 50s and read recently that my risk of heart attack might be higher now. Is there is that true? And then is there anything I can do to decrease the risk? So heart, most people understand that there's different risk factors for heart disease, like smoking, um, uh, being overweight, having hypertension, all those things can, uh, diabetes, all those things can contribute to your risk of having a heart attack. But there are some, uh, some other inflammatory type conditions that we now know, uh, well, we've known for years that people with rheumatoid arthritis, if they've had it for long enough, they're at a little bit increased risk of having a heart attack or a stroke. And the reasons for that are thought to be that because these, uh, the rheumatoid arthritis and other autoimmune diseases create a chronic inflammatory state inside the blood vessels, that that can damage them over time in the same kind of ways as, say, having high cholesterol or smoking can do. So because of that, we have included rheumatoid arthritis and a couple of other inflammatory diseases as uh, risk factors. And basically it means this. The normal screening that somebody would get, whether they're male or female or in their 50s, uh, and usually that's on a yearly basis, uh, maybe more frequently depending on what they have, and that could be looking at things like their blood pressure, uh, their blood sugar, their fasting blood sugar, or A1C. Uh, all those things would go into um, in, into an equation. So there's a little formula that we use to calculate their risk over the next 10 years. If that risk is high enough, uh, or if there are overt, you know, if it's like, oh, your blood pressure is high, okay, uh, we need to address that because it's going to cause some damage downstream as you get older. Uh, but if you don't, even if you don't find that, you know, a lot of times your physician will say, well, I've calculated your risk of having a heart attack or a stroke, and it's 10% or 15%. It's high enough that I think we ought to start a cholesterol medication like a Torvastatin or Resuvastatin. That's Lipitor or Crestor. And the reason for that is those two in particular 
uh, have been found to decrease your risk of heart attack or stroke. Even if you're if you're feeling fine, once you look at your risk, rheumatoid arthritis can do the same thing. Uh, so your physician should be looking at you in a little bit more detail, and they may even recommend at some point, and they're probably calculating that risk, that total risk of a heart attack or a stroke, whether they're telling you that or not. Uh, if they say, I think you need to be on one of these cholesterol medications, and you might say, well, why? That's the reason why. So this is rheumatoid arthritis. Are there other types of arthritis? Oh, sure. Now, we're not talking about, you know, most people who have arthritis, it's the wear and tear arthritis. So that's osteoarthritis. Rheumatoid arthritis is an autoimmune disease where it's actually the synovium that's being attacked. So that's the lining, sort of the cushion between uh, between the joints. Uh, but there's other things, too. Uh, lupus can do that. There are the seronegative spondyloarthropathies. I just love saying that. Uh, but things like Rider's disease and, uh, you know, uh, ankylosing spondylitis, uh, lots of other things that can, that can uh, sort of contribute to that as well. Uh, it, chronic chemotherapy, if you're going to be there on that for a long time, uh, that's another, uh, you know, if you have that, we've got lots of good chemotherapies. You can't cure particularly some of the hematologic cancers, but you can treat them for a long time, like 10 years. Well, that's a long time to have a chronic inflammatory state in your body. That's another, you know, sort of category that we would look at and say, eh, you know, we, to help prevent the heart attack, we might want to be on a cholesterol medication. This is Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio, not taking live phone calls. We're wrapping up this hour. We've been talking about uh, some things in the news and some information that uh, Dr. Jimmy shares with his patients, someone on a regular basis. Uh, a reminder that if you have a question, you can always send it to us at remedy at mpbonline.org. GERD is something that we talk about on the show on occasion, and this question asks about that, saying they've been recently diagnosed with GERD. I've tried to limit my intake of spicy foods and caffeinated drinks. The latter has been really difficult for me to stop, however, and I haven't really seen a difference in my symptoms. Can I try adding back caffeinated drinks in moderation? Yeah, gastroesophageal reflux disease or GERD. So that's almost everybody has that uh, has felt the sensation of that. It doesn't become, you know, a disease or a condition until you have it regularly to where it causes a lot of recurrent problems. But basically heartburn, uh, you can have esophagitis where that acid from the stomach that's normally there to break down foods comes back up and it causes that burning sensation in the lower part of your esophagus. That's the tube that connects the, the um, back of your throat to your stomach. Um, so we know a lot of things can trigger this. Everybody who has GERD knows this inherently. They're like, eh, I probably shouldn't eat that or probably shouldn't drink that that fourth uh, cup of coffee because uh, I know I'm going to have problems. Um, but, it, you know, I, I get it. Like, I'm, you know, I'm, I, full disclosure, I am drinking a Coke right now while we're, we're recording this. Uh, and I do love Coke. Um, so what do you do? I mean, what's the, you know, some foods and, and things can certainly do it. Uh, caffeinated drinks have been looked at a lot. And there have been some studies. There was one study in particular looked at 48,000 people. And they had two different groups. All of these 48,000 people had gastroesophageal reflux, which just tells you it's common. Um, but there was one group where they looked at everything that had caffeine in it, so coffee, tea, soda, and then another group that was just drinking milk, water, and juice. And um, they basically saw, uh, you know, sort of a modest uh, increase in symptoms in those, those patients who were drinking caffeinated drinks. Uh, so that's the soda, the coffee, uh, the tea. Uh, but it was dose-dependent. In other words, uh, sort of intuitive. If you drank the whole pot of coffee, you were probably going to have more symptoms uh, than if you drank just one cup. Um, but it is patient-specific. So what I tell my patients is, hey, you're being treated for gastric, particularly if you're being treated or you want to get off medications, maybe you can modify some of this. Uh, but if you really, really, if coffee is important to you or if caffeinated drinks is important to you is something that you want to try, you know, do it in moderation, see what happens. If the symptoms are there, stop it. If not, you can continue drinking it. Uh, our old friend, Dr. Rick DeShazo, who used to be the host of the show, once told me <clears throat> that uh, sometimes people, when they're cutting back on caffeinated drinks, uh, coffee and, and, and soft drinks and those sorts of things, you can have a little bit of caffeine dependency and you can have some, 
really, I guess, like kind of severe headaches. His suggestion was to wean off. In other words, maybe if you have the can of Coke, get the little 10-ounce cans or whatever. But but he, he suggested maybe not trying to go cold turkey when you're trying to decrease caffeine. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and for a lot of us, uh, and I'd probably include myself in this right now, you know, I love coffee and uh, it's, you know, that that is that is true. And uh, that's a common cause of headaches, particularly in somebody who's like, eh, I'm going to stop this. This is my New Year's resolution. Probably got a lot of people out there right now, uh, you know, with with headaches for one reason or another that may be from that, from cutting off that uh, that caffeine in, uh, ingestion. Uh, Dr. Rick is right. You want to um, uh, you want to wean off of that. So if you're drinking a six pack of Cokes a day, you might want to go five, four, three, two, one. And there's no real formula to use for that. You know, there's not really a way to, to do that, to calculate it out, but just to decrease it slowly over maybe the course of a few days to a week. And, you know, I've tried <clears> to <throat> limit uh, sodas because I, I drink a lot. I'm, I'm, I'm a, a Coke Zero drinker myself, but uh, I found a couple of things. I try to keep a big thing of ice water in my refrigerator because I do like mm-hmm. drinking water. And so sometimes I can reach for that instead of trying to get a Coke. Also, I've noticed when you go out to eat, if you don't have to buy a drink, it cuts down the price on the bill at the end of the meal, <laughs> which is a real incentive. It has other for me. advantages, right? So, yeah. So if you get some good ice water, and, you know, I found out. At first, I thought, oh, I'm going to miss the, the flavor and all that. But I think what it's like a lot of stuff. Once you get used to it, you'll see that water works just as well kind of as a companion uh, to your meal as most, you know, as maybe a Coke might be. Yeah, it does. And, you know, a lot of people will cut back on sugar uh, like sweet tea. In the South, we love our sweet tea. And uh, if you've ever cut back on the sugar, maybe do like half and half sweet, unsweet tea. Uh, and then you go back to a sweet tea with the full southern syrupy blend. You're like, oh, my goodness, this is terrible. So, yeah, a lot of those tastes are uh, learned over times and you sort of get used to it. Same thing with salt, too. And real quick here, we're just about out of almost out of time. But for occasional heartburn or indigestion, uh, is the over-the-counter stuff like Tums and Rolaids somewhat effective and okay to use on occasion. Yeah, that's fine to use on occasion, but if you're using it every day and you're doing the whole roll, uh, then you probably need to see your physician about that to uh, investigate what else is going on. All right, that's all the time that we have for this week. We want to appreciate you listening to us today, and uh, I want to thank uh, Kevin Farrell for being here in the booth with me as we record this program. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Pediatrics and Internal Medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Southern Remedy is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio, and funding is provided in part by a grant from the University of Mississippi Medical Center and support from listeners just like you. We'll be back next Wednesday at 11. Stay tuned for NPR's Here and Now coming up next. Hey, this is Malcolm White with the Mississippi Arts Commission. I'm one of the hosts of the Mississippi Arts Hour, the arts interview show on Think Radio. Every week, myself or one of my fellow hosts bring you in-depth interviews with different creative Mississippians. We talk with visual artists, musicians, writers, as well as people who help bring the arts to their communities. We hear about how each artist learned their craft and get some insight into their creative process. You can hear the Arts Hour every Sunday at 5 p.m., on Think Radio, or listen anytime by subscribing to the show through your favorite podcast app.